in for an amazing treat this weekend as a good friend of mine in Cathedral of Faith, Dick Foth, is going to come minister in a few moments. Dick is a author, he's a mentor, he's a leader, he's a storyteller, he's a man of God who's had tremendous impact on the kingdom of God. He has a long history with us here at Cathedral of Faith. Back in the 80s, he was always part of our, leading our family conferences and speaking the word to us, but it goes back even further for me. When I taught at Bethany University, he was my boss because he was the president of Bethany at the time. But even way before that, when I was just a young little college student, I was really struggling with my call to ministry because in those days, all the models around me for pastoring were people when they'd get up front, they would scream and their veins would pop out of their neck. And when they would preach, I would watch that and say, I don't know if I can do that. In fact, part of me is like, I don't know if I want to do that. And then one day, Dick Foth came and spoke. And when this man began to share the Word of God and bring it to life with this personal, relational style that brought insights of the Word that cut to my heart and made me fall in love with Jesus, I said, God, maybe if you could help me do something like that, I'd be willing to be a pastor. And so 40-some years ago, it was his influence that God used to direct me to become the pastor God wanted me to be. And I'm so grateful for his life and ministry. And that's what Dick does. He helps you see possibilities. And that's my prayer for you this weekend, that you're going to begin to see new possibilities of what God can do in and through you. Let's welcome Dick Foth as he comes to minister. fun to coin a phrase from Father Mancari over here, <clears throat> what fun it has been to be here last evening and again today, and just sense your, uh, your intensity for Jesus and for each other, it's wonderful to walk into a place like this. Most of you don't know me from a post. You say, who's the old dude up there in front? <clears throat> well, just, just as a, a frame of reference, excuse me, I'm going to take a sip of water here. <clears throat> By the time I get to third service, I'm going <clears> to <throat> I'm going to have a shorter message. No. I... <clears throat> I'm a I'm a kid from Oakland, California. I <clears throat> I was born in Alameda on St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, 1942. You say, let me do the math. I'll just tell you what it is. I've just started my 77th trip around the sun. You say, why don't you just say you're 76 years old? Because that's boring. If you're on your 77th trip around the sun, that's a whole like, different deal. And, and uh, some years in, and I, I went to Cal Berkeley for a year, transferred to Bethany College years ago back in the early 60s, met a girl from Modesto, California, and decided that we'd get married. So city married country. I like the sound of sirens and trucks and buses, and Ruth likes the sound of peaches and grapes. And so we just, we married, we've been married 54 years, and we have, we have these, yes. <clears throat> we have 12 grandchildren from 26 to 2, and we have one great-grandchild. Now, I have this theory that when you're a grandparent, those of you who are grandparents, you know this, that you start feeling immortal when you're a grandparent because you're going past the next generation. When you have a great-grandchild, you're just officially old. So I've just <laughs> tossed that out there. 
but it's great to be back with Pastor Wayne and my great friend Dewey Short that I've known for over 50 years, right over there. Let's hear it for Dewey. The, the theme that I want to speak to this morning has to do with what happened on the evening following resurrection morning. And in order to do that, I want to just give a little perspective to you. For me to stand here and speak to you is one thing. If I just move just a few feet, this is a different look. If I stepped out here, this would be a different look. If I came down just a few steps, it'd only be 10 feet or so, but it's a very different look. But, but if you want a different look, you ought to be a preschooler. All of us have been preschoolers, but preschoolers are like two and a half feet high. They wander around in a world of kneecaps, and they're just out here, you know, Every, the tables are up here, chairs are here, and all of that. And um, Ruth and I were visiting our, our only grandchild at the time. She's now 26 and a mom herself, but when she was two and a half or three, we went to visit her early in the morning. She climbs up in our bed, like 5.30 in the morning. Well, if you're a parent and that three-year-old climbs up in your bed, you're going, oh, no, not again, you know, and they're usually wet, and, uh, you know, but, but, but if you're a grandparent, you know, if you're a parent, that's, uh, but if you're a grandparent, that's kind of cool, and, and so she's waking us up. She said, let's talk. So I'm clawing my way up out of the darkness, and I said, what do you want to talk about? She said, I'm going to have a, a baby sister. Well, her mom was pregnant, but they didn't know the sex of the child. I said, it could be her brother. She said, yeah, but I want a sister. I said, okay, why don't we think of some names? She said, all right. I said, why don't we call the baby Boogalooney? She looked at me. I said, how about Zonga Bonga Wonga? And she started to chuckle. And I said, why don't we call the baby? And this is to describe children's perspective, right? I, I said, why don't we call the baby Yabaslavovich? And she just howled and said, oh, Grandpa, those are boy names. You know, what do I know? I had no idea. And if you think preschoolers, if you think little people have a different idea about life, you ought to try Jesus. Jesus has this totally revolutionary approach to life because he is life. He sees it from way more than a 30,000-foot view. He sees it from the beginning and before, however that works, to the end and beyond. That's who he is. And so what has happened is last week this time, we had Easter. We had Resurrection Day. It was a great day. And the Sunday before that, we had Palm Sunday. That was a, a great day. But in, in between those two days, hell showed up. Because you had Palm Sunday when they're cheering him, and within five days, they're jeering him. He goes from king to criminal in five days. And the disciples who were with him, they had to be so excited on Palm Sunday and so discouraged on Good Friday, they're just, I mean, they're all over the map. You talk about an emotional roller coaster. So then on Sunday morning, the word comes in, he's risen. They're saying, you got, what, what are you talking about? So this is what it says in John, the 20th chapter. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. So here, here you have Palm Sunday where they're just king of the hill, if you will. And you get to, to Good Friday and they're just, they, they all run away, essentially, all but one. All run away. And then you have this 
Easter Sunday morning, what we call Easter Sunday morning, Jesus is risen, they're just finding him out, and then this is the evening, and they have the doors locked because they're scared. You know, they're scared because of what might happen to them, and then Jesus shows up, just appears in the room because the doors are locked. So that, that scares you too. So you got, you're scared because of the Jewish leaders, you're scared because Jesus just shuffles the atoms, and however that works, and shows up. And I think to myself, who hasn't been afraid? If I were to show of hands and we were all honest, everybody's been afraid. That's just how it is. From, our, from being a baby, baby have two, babies have two fears, we're told. One is the fear of falling and the other is the fear of loud noises. But you can Google this if you want to get the truth. And, you know, you just go there and Google it. There are 2,000 different kinds of fears, everything from fear of heights to the fear of peanut butter on the roof of your mouth. No kidding, that's a fear. And, and so I say, why are we afraid? Well, we're human beings. Human beings get scared. That's what we do. That's our sort of default position. And when you read the studies today, there has never been a more anxious age than this. In part because we know too much and we hear too much. And we're learning stuff from other places that we can't change and can't do anything about, but it's just all this. So, so I'm talking to a college student several years ago, and I said, give me a word. He was a junior at university. Give me a word describes your generation. And he said, overwhelmed, instantly, overwhelmed. I said, really? I said, you know, I think my parents' generation was overwhelmed. They had the First World War, the Great Depression, the Great Influenza Epidemic. They had the Second World War. That's what I think about when I think over. I said, what are you overwhelmed by? He said, I'm overwhelmed by information. I said, I get that. There'll be more new information generated this year than in the 5,000 previous years combined. And that happened last year and this year and next year. That's overwhelming. I said, but you're so connected. You got Snapchat, Instagram, you got Facebook. You got... He said, yeah, I'm... I'm connected. My problem is I just don't know how to start a conversation. When you're overwhelmed with information and it's a performance culture and you have to get it right, you want to interview by email, you don't want an open-ended conversation because that's scary. And that's not, a, that's not somebody's fault, but it's the culture of the time. So we have this unspecified anxiety that surrounds us and we look for safe people and safe conversations and safe places. We're afraid oftentimes of what we do know and afraid of what we don't know. Fear is natural. It's a default place. I, um, I was in Salt Lake City some years ago. Ruth and I lived in Washington, D.C. from 1993 to 2008. After I was president at Bethany, took a year's sabbatical. I was 50 years old and took a year's sabbatical just on the East Coast to try to figure out what to do with the last half. And in that time, some folks invited us to Washington, D.C. to work in a ministry that works behind the scenes, one-on-one, -on -one, uh, with people in public leadership, with no agenda for them except to encourage them in their roles and to nudge them toward Jesus, if you will. So that's our role. No agenda. Not going to put you in a newsletter. Don't have to do pictures with us. None of that. I was traveling with a government leader. Ended up in Salt Lake City. Had had some medical tests a few days before. And um, my phone rang, my cell phone rang in the lobby of the hotel, picked it up, it was the doctor's office saying, could you be here tomorrow morning? I said, I'm in Salt Lake City. I can't come to Washington, D.C. tomorrow morning. Is this about the tests? And the nurse said, yes. I said, can you tell them the results? She said, no. 
I said, well, I can't get there by tomorrow morning. Can you tell me if the, if the lab results were positive or negative? She said, they were negative and the doctor needs to talk to you. I said, I'll be there in four days because we were driving. For four days, I knew that I had cancer. And for four days, I didn't know how bad it was. And I got scared. I'd been a believer for 50 years. What do you, what's, what's with that? You're a believer. What do you see? You trust the king of the universe. What are you, what are you scared about? Because, you know, it's, it's one thing to be scared. It's another thing to be scared and also feel guilty. So scared and guilty are the ugly twins that show up in our lives when we're believers and we get, and we get scared. And I'm, so I'm thinking to myself, I wonder if there are any other believers that are in Scripture that got scared. And you start reading Scripture, a lot of people got scared. Abraham got scared. Moses got scared. You get to the, to the, to the big prophet in the Old Testament, Elijah. Anybody know that name, Elijah? Elijah, and he has this big deal with the prophets of Baal at Asherah, hundreds of prophets of Baal where they have a, they have a shootout at the OK Corral, for those of you who are Western fans. I mean, this was a showdown on top of Mount Carmel. You can read it in 1 Kings 18 and 19. And, and they, he calls fire down from heaven. He kills the prophets of Baal. He outruns a chariot 17 miles to Jezreel. He was a dude. I mean, Elijah was something. If he were a, a pastor, like in pastoral terms, it would have been the greatest weekend of his life. It was unbelievable. And then the queen, a gal named Jezebel, sent him a text. Well, got a message to him <laughs> that said something like this. By this time tomorrow night, you are dead meat. That's a fourth paraphrase of the Old Testament. And it says in 1 Kings, the 19th chapter, that Elijah, the prophet of God, who calls down fire from heaven, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. You say, how could that happen? How could somebody that close to God be afraid? Well, if you're in the battle, it may be a spiritual battle. It may be spiritual warfare, but it's still warfare, and people get battle fatigue. They get PTSD. They get all kinds of stuff because you're worn out. And when you're worn out, you're vulnerable to all kinds of things. And so, so I'm reading this, and I'm feeling a bit better. And over time, things worked out and God was gracious and here I stand. So, you know, the, the, the challenge, the challenge for us is we say, um, boy, if, if I could maybe just walk with Jesus physically, maybe if then I wouldn't be scared because we're 2,000 years removed. I can't see him and all that. Listen to how it reads. Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with a few loaves and fish, done this huge miracle. He sends his disciples across the lake. And listen to how it reads in Mark 6. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake. This is, this is the disciples. And he was alone, Jesus, on the land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. I love this story. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. Well, I would have thought he was a ghost. Who, who do you find walking on the water? And they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. They, they weren't slightly nervous. These are people who were walking with Jesus every day, 24-7. They weren't slightly nervous or a little anxious. They were terrified. And immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I. 
Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat, and you see the rest of the verse. I, th I think Jesus shouted in the storm. I don't know if you've ever been on a storm, in a storm on the open sea, but I have. When I was seven and a half years old, my parents were missionaries in India. We came home on a 5,000-ton Danish freighter, five weeks on the open sea from what is now Sri Lanka to Boston. And two days out in the Indian Ocean, the monsoon hit two weeks early, so it was a typhoon for two or three days, just 40-foot waves. We'd go up and slide off sideways, and I'm seven and a half years old. I think I'm going home to Jesus, you know? It's a scary thing, and it's loud. You can hardly hear yourself think. And so here they are in the Sea of Galilee, and the wind is howling, and Jesus shouts, take care, it is I, don't be, don't be afraid. Or take courage at his eye. The phrase that he uses in the original language in the Greek is ego ami, which literally is I am. Take courage. I am. Don't be afraid. I, um, I have a friend who's now with the Lord, but he was a Jewish kid raised in Brooklyn. He said, I grew up in Brooklyn hearing my mother say, <clears throat> grow up, get a good job, marry a nice Jewish girl. Grow up, get a good job, marry a nice Jewish girl. She said, she said it so much to me, so rapidly over the years, I thought that was one word. You know, grow up, get a good job, marry a nice Jewish girl. I think this is one word. <clears throat> I think this is one word. This is what I think it looks like. Take courage, I am. Don't be afraid. Just one word. Take courage, I am. Don't be afraid. He shouts this in this. Why don't you shout that with me? Take courage, I am. Don't be afraid. One more time. Take courage, I am. Don't be afraid. The core of that, I am, is what Moses heard when he stood at the burning bush and he says, which God shall I say has sent me? And God says, I am that I am. And I'm saying, what kind of a name is that? Clearly, it's not a Western God because that would be I do that I do. This is I am. This is the God that when everything else goes up in smoke, he still is. This is the God who says to, to Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. This is the God that says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the one who goes before you. I am the one who provides for you. I am the beginning. I am the end. That God. That's the one. I am that I am. <clears throat> I, am I am is the most secure name in the universe. Right? So I'm a nine-year-old fifth grader, Horace Mann School in East Oakland, California. It's dark in my room at night. I don't like it to be dark in my room at night, so I sing songs to... Keep the stuff away. You know, I just I sing every church song I know, every school song I know. And pretty soon I run out of songs and I start calling my mom. Mom, mom. Well, it's just a little bungalow house. She's like 20 feet away. Mom, you say, why don't you just get out of your bed and go find her? Hey, when you're, when you're nine years old and it's dark in your room, you are not getting out of your bed to go find your mom. Because the guy under the bed will grab your ankle. And you don't want to do that. And if he doesn't get you, the one in the closet will. So you're not, you're not going there. Mom. Pretty soon she'd say, what is it, honey? I'd say, oh, nothing. I just needed to know you were there. Now I'm on my 77th trip around the sun. I don't call my mom. I say, God. God. God? He says, what is it, Foth? He calls me Foth. He says, what is it, Foth? I say, oh, nothing. Just needed to know you were there. And when I know it's there and I got this problem, I say, well, just don't stand there. Do something here. Do something here. And he says, Foth, you don't do anything there. You just be still and know that I am. I am is the most secure name.
the most secure name in the universe. The psalmist said it this way. I'm just going to read a couple of verses. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Nations are in an uproar. Verse 6 of uh, Psalm 46. Nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. At the heart at the heart of what chases fear away is us recognizing the I am in our lives. I have this thesis, you know, I, I've got this name, Richard Foth. Foth defines my clan. Richard defines my place, my unique place in the clan. But when I start following Jesus, when I receive him into my life, I think I get a new family name, I am. So I'm Richard I am Foth. It's this large family connected by the Holy Spirit all over the planet, across the universe, across the ages, we are connected in that name. And, and when, I start, when I trust him, when I trust the fact that he's not going anywhere, I feel like I'm going everywhere. He's not going anywhere. When I start trusting him, trust is at the heart of every relationship. After Jesus fed the 5,000, some people found him. And they asked him this question. This is in John, the sixth chapter, the 28th and 29th verses. They asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires. What must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answers them in the singular. He says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. To believe in the one he sent. Now, the, the word faith and trust and believe, those verbs and nouns, are all the same root word in the New Testament. So when we talk about faith or belief or trust, it's all the same base root word. And Jesus is saying, your work, the work of the kingdom is to trust me. That's the work. You say, well, I want to go do some work for God and build orphanages in Botswana. I want to do some great things in Soviet Union or Russia or wherever. I want to go this place or that place and do some work for The work of the kingdom is not that. The work of the kingdom is believing for that. That's the hard work. Bricks and mortar is the easy part compared to trusting God and taking the next step. That's the heart of every relationship. No government works without trust. No family works without trust. No marriage, no friendship, no business works without trust. It's at the heart of who we are. It's interesting that the gospel writer John never uses trust or belief or faith as a noun in the gospel of John. He uses it 98 times as an action verb. It's an action verb. So you say, okay, I'm, I'm hearing you, <clears throat> that I need to recognize I am, that, that confronts fear, chases fear away, that, that God's not going anywhere. But, but where does it work? <clears throat> where does trust work? Well, I've got two things and two stories, okay? Two points and two stories, and I'm out. Here's the first point. Trust only works in the dark. Trust only works in the dark. If you read the trust chapter, what we familiarly call the trust chapter, Hebrews 11, it says that Abraham heard the voice of God. He obeyed, because the, the root verb for obey is to hear. He heard the voice of God, and he went to a place he didn't know. So he's over here in what is now Iraq, comes up over the Fertile Crescent to what is now Israel, <clears throat> and he, uh, he does it, 
just because God tells him to do it. He doesn't know where, he doesn't have a GPS, doesn't have his iPhone map thing or Waze or Nav or any of that stuff. He doesn't have any of that. I think if Rotary had been in, in play back in the day, Rotary International, here comes this big businessman, because he's a big business guy. He comes with all of his animals and his people, and they come to the edge of town, and you see the Rotary guy saying, Abe, where are you going? And he has this great faith response. He says, oh, I don't know. I don't know is a wonderful faith response. Where you go ultimately is important, but where you go in between, most of us, all of us sitting here say, I had no idea the places I'd go before I ended up here. I had no idea what my life would look like. I had no idea when I was 10 that I would end up in a place like cathedral. I just, I just had no idea. There's an old gospel song because it isn't where you're going, it's with whom you travel. There's an old gospel song that says, if Jesus goes with me, I'll go anywhere. So the who in my life is more important than the where in my life when it comes to that. And so trust only works in the dark. Say that with me. Trust only works in the dark. If, if you have your plan, if you can see where you're going, you don't need to trust God. But none of us here knows what's going to happen tomorrow afternoon at 3. None of us knows that. So, one of the things that I've done over the years is a trust walk. Trust walk is where you take somebody's hand and you have them close their eyes and they, they just, you know, do this thing. Well, I'm going to ask Pastor Wayne to join. I did this spontaneously last service, so he's a little more prepared this time. But what I'm going to do, he says he trusts me. That's what he says. So if you'll just close your eyes, and I'm just going to lead him around for a moment. And we're just going to walk around like this. And we'll just turn around a couple of times, sort of get him going like a small version of Crack the Whip. I feel like I'm waltzing with him. This is it. Okay, we just, we're doing this. And he's keeping his eyes closed. And we're just going to go over here. And then I'm just going to let his hand go. And he's going to keep his eyes closed. I'm going to turn my mic off. So I did that once with 200 men at a men's retreat in Illinois. They're outside on the grass by a highway, have no idea what the motorists were thinking as they went by. And when I said, okay, drop your hands and start calling each other, it, it was just cacophony. It just went crazy. Because it's one thing for him to hear my voice singly, but when, you're, when, you're the, when there are 99 other voices, you've got to really listen. And of course, that's how our lives are. We have 99 other voices, and we're trying to hear his voice. And so when we were done, after about 20 minutes, I called him in and said, let's debrief. So when did you want to open your eyes, or when did you open your eyes, when you were following your guy? <clears throat> this one guy said, when I felt the tree. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? He said, a shadow fell across me, and I felt like a tree. So I stopped, and I opened my eyes, and there was a tree. 
50 feet over there. But the shadow felt real, and I felt like I needed to take control. How many times in my life when something feels real, I say, God, I got this, because clearly you're not here, so let's be, okay? Somebody else said, when I got directions that were imprecise, like you're coming to some stairs sometime soon, and that's not good enough. Or I got directions too late, like that was a log. You know, that's not good. Aren't you grateful for a God who's precise and always on time? There was, there was one older guy. He was in his 80s. I thought that was old now. Now he's, we're close. But, but, he, but he was in, and I didn't think he was going to do it, but his cheeks were flushed. And he said, that was one of the most exciting things I've done in quite a while. I said, why? He said, because for once in my life, someone else was responsible for the obstacles. This Jesus says, you follow me. I, I, I go point. I take responsibility for the obstacles when you follow me. Trust only works in the dark. Secondly, Trust looks like a child. We trust like children. Listen to how Jesus coming down the Jordan River Valley on his way to the cross has an exchange with some people who were bringing little kids to him. Mark the 10th chapter. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. See, they were getting heavy teaching here, and besides, these were probably women and little children, and they were chattel property back in the day. They didn't count in that culture, right? And, and so... So the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He rebuked them. <laughs> he, uh, my thought is, if, if, you want to, if you want to make God mad, if you want to tick him off, try to keep little kids away from him. Okay? He says, let the ch- little children come to me. Don't hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. These are the stakeholders. These are the shareholders. Okay? Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never Enter it. Boy, that's, that's hard language. But I'm saying, what kind of, what kind of kid is that? Because what, what, I, I know some kids who are mean, you know, so it couldn't be that. Maybe, maybe it's because kids are sometimes direct. You know, our eldest daughter, who's in her 50s now, when she was 10, driving through town, I turned to her and said, Erica, what do you want to be when you grow up? She looked at me and said, grinned and said, I don't know, Dad. What do you want to be? You know, so maybe, I'm saying smart mouth kid. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's the kids are direct. Or maybe it's because they're always learners. Chris, our, our youngest, he came in when he was a little guy and said, help me with my numbers, Dad. I said, what do you want to do? He said, I want to add to 10. I said, what's 2 plus 3? And he looked at his hands. He said, 5. I said, what's 5 plus 2? He looked at his hands again. He said, 7. I said, what's 7 plus 2? He said, 9. I said, what's 10 plus 2? He looked at his hands. He said, I can't tell you that. <laughs> I said, how come? He said, because I'd have to have 12 fingers to tell you that. And I'm going, my kid, the rocket scientist, he didn't know. He, he didn't know that he knew. You know, he's always learning. Maybe that's what Jesus is talking about. Or, or maybe it's the kids are winsome. Walked in one day and Susanna, who's now a mom of three teenage boys, which we feel she deserves. And, uh, she, no, no, she's wonderful. Great mom. But she, she, she was lying on the floor by the washing machine, just laying there, turned away from I said, Susanna, what's going on? She said, nothing which is a dead giveaway. I said, stand up, Susanna. She stood up, and when she stood up and turned toward me, from under her shirt came the head of a little white kitten right here. I said, Susanna, you know the rule. No cats. And uh, those of you who are cat lovers, forgive me. This is not Bible. This is just me. I, you know, because <laughs> dogs come and lick you. You kind of know it there. But cats, people say, I own a cat. And I say, no. The cat might own you, but you don't own the cat. You know. Anyway, 
we had the rule, no cats, but mom, they'd come out of Safeway, somebody's giving away a litter of kitties, and mom's complicit. So he's got this little white guy. I said, you know the rule, Susanna. And she looked at me with big brown eyes, and she said, he was a stranger, and I took him in. <laughs> what do you do when he quotes scripture? You know, what do you, I don't know what to do. But the, the, word that, the word that Jesus uses, or that Luke uses for this exchange, is babies. They, these were babes in arms. I think Jesus is saying, except you become like a baby, absolutely dependent. Can babies can't do anything for themselves. Unless you become like that, you don't get in. And I'm saying, now, wait a minute, that's been a huge tension, because when I was a kid doing dumb stuff, somebody would say, oh, Dick, grow up. So I've been trying to grow up all these years. Now I'm like in my mid-70s, and, and I'm saying, okay, I'm growing up. I'm trying to be mature in Christ. How does that work with being a baby? How does that work? And I've come to this conclusion that if, if I trust God like a baby, if I, I'm in with Jesus like a baby, then I can be mature with you. I can be an adult with you. You can take my word to the bank because I trust him completely. That's how it is. So... My closing story. Ruth and I lived in Washington, D.C. from 1993 to 2008. Our daughter, Jenny, our second daughter, came from graduate school to D.C., got a job in a congressman's office as office manager. She was hired by the chief of staff, a fellow named Charlie White. The chiefs of staff run Capitol Hill, 435 congressmen, 100 senators. The chiefs of staff run their calendars. You don't get to the person unless you go through the chief of staff. Charlie White was a retired Navy submarine captain. Wonderful guy. And the Hill is populated with staffers who are 20-somethings. And they, you know, just thousands of them. And so Charlie hired her. Well, the congressman was a great believer in Jesus. And Charlie would travel the world with him to hard places where bombs were dropping and bullets were flying, places that were in huge eruptions of social conflict, and they had big emphasis on human rights and on religious freedoms. And um, Charlie loved the congressman's vision for dealing with those kind of situations. But, but he, didn't, he wasn't buying the Jesus part. He just wasn't buying that. And one day they were in Sierra Leone. Some of you have seen that movie, Blood Diamonds, and they, all this conflict going on. And um, Charlie felt a severe pain in his hip, came back, went to Johns Hopkins Medical Center in Baltimore. They said, you have a virulent form of cancer. We don't know if we can stop it, but at the very least, we need to replace your hip. So Charlie's waiting for a hip. He's at home. Jenny has resigned from the office at this time on her way with World Vision to Africa. The day before she flies out, she says, I want to see Charlie before I leave. So I drive her out in a snowstorm 20 miles out of Washington, D.C. to Charlie's house. We walk in. We're just going to stay 20 minutes, and we end up staying two hours because Charlie wanted to talk about God. At the end of the time, we have a prayer. Jenny hugs him and says, I love you, Charlie, and vice versa. As we walk out, I said, Charlie, can I come see you later in the week? He said, yeah. We put Jenny on a plane to Africa the next night, and on Friday, I went back to see Charlie. When I walked in, First thing he said to me was, Dick, I don't think I can do this without God. I said, I'm with you. He said, what should I do? I said, well, like, why don't you give your whole life to him? He said, okay, I just have one question. I said, what's that? He said, I haven't paid any attention to God for 64 years. If I come to him now when I could be checking out, as he put it, isn't he going to be mad? I said, Charlie, 
you have adult children? He said, yeah. I said, what if one of them was estranged and he or she called you up and said, you know, Dad, I really messed up and I've blown the family name and spent the money and done all that, and I, but I'm sorry, and I, I just... I just need you to forgive me. I just want to come home. Can I just come home and hang out and eat pizza and watch movies and catch up? And get... How would you feel about that? He said, I would love that. I said, well, if, if you as an imperfect earthly father feel that way, how much more do you think a perfect, all-forgiving, all-loving heavenly father would feel that way? And he said, he said, okay. He said, what do I do? I said, well, let's pray. He said, how do you do that? Because if you've never done that, you don't know the drill, you know. And uh, I said, well, it's just like talking to me, except you can't see him. He was a little hesitant. Charlie's a brilliant guy, you know. I said, Charlie, could I help you with that? If I said some phrases, maybe you could follow me out. He said, okay. So I said, okay, just repeat after me. I said, dear God, this is Charlie. He said, dear God, this is Charlie. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I just was getting ready to give him the next phrase, and he just took off. He just said, God, I've, uh, I've screwed the whole thing up here for a lot of years. I just want you to know that. And, I just went, and he just dumped it out on the table. Like for two minutes, he just spilled his guts. I'm like, don't you? And I had a good prayer all ready for him to. <laughs> don't you hate it when somebody just takes off and just tells the truth? You know, he just put it out there. And then he just stopped. He didn't even say amen. And we all know it doesn't work if you don't say amen. And, and, then, and then he just slid back in his chair, looked at me and said, okay, now what? <laughs> and all of a sudden, he's the Navy sub-captain, ready for the mission. I said, your, your wife Mary's prayed for you for a lot of years, Charlie. Why don't you call her and tell her what you did? He said, Mary, come in here. Lovely lady flies as an attendant with United to Europe every week, first class. And she came in, he said, Mary, I've just given my whole life to God through Jesus Christ. I have embraced him fully and willingly, under no stress or duress from Dick. <laughs> Mary liked that. We started going to see Charlie every once in a while, and as we went to see him, he was getting weaker and weaker. We had prayed for healing, it was all of that, but it was clear that th this was not a marathon for Charlie. This was a six-month sprint to the end for him. Walked in one day, he said, Dick, you know that thing where you said, if I follow Jesus, that he'll help me see people in a different way? I said, yeah. He said, I think it's starting to happen. I said, what do you mean? He said, I woke up this morning. I looked at Mary, and you know, Mary's a beautiful woman. I said, she is. And he said, but I looked at her, and it was like I was looking at the Mona Lisa for the first time. I said, have you, uh, did you happen to mention that to Mary? He said, no. I said, Mary, come in here. She liked that Mona Lisa thing. And one day I walked in, and he said, Dick, we need to talk about faith, about trust. I said, why? said, I don't think I have enough. I said, well, how much do you need? He said, I don't know how much I need. I said, what does Jesus say you need? He said, I don't know, Dick, what Jesus says I need. I said, Jesus says you need faith the size of a mustard seed. Middle Eastern mustard's like fine pepper, just a tint. I said, Charlie, you got your new hip. You're sitting on the chair, your legs up on that ottoman. I said, can you put any more weight on that chair than you're putting right now in trusting the chair? He said, no. I said, that's how you trust Jesus. He said, oh, okay. Shortest conversation I've ever had on faith. I walked out the door that day. I said, God, what's going on here? And he said, both. Charlie is a child. He's brilliant over here. He's brilliant over here. But in the spiritual journey, he's a baby. He doesn't know anything. And he's going to believe what you tell him. So you need to get it right. One day, Ruth and I got an invitation to go to the change of command for a friend of ours who's commander-in-chief of the Atlantic Fleet, a three-star admiral, and they were making him head of the whole Navy. $120 billion budget a year. 
and they do this thing in the Navy, and I told Charlie, Charlie said, you're going to love it. We're sitting on the deck of the USS Enterprise aircraft carrier in Norfolk Naval, Air or in Norfolk uh, Naval Base in Norfolk, Virginia. Hundreds of us, and they do this thing where they blow the bosun's whistle, that ooey, that thing, and then they say, attention all hands, and they announce the arrival of the dignitary, not by name, but by the entity that he or she commands. So they said, attention all hands, Atlantic Second Fleet arriving, and the commander, the admiral for the Second Fleet came. Then they said, Atlantic Fleet arriving, and our friend Vern Clark came. And then they said, United States Navy arriving, and the Secretary of the Navy came. I understand that when the President of the United States comes on board, any naval vessel anywhere in the world. They sound the bosun's whistle and say, attention all hands, United States of America arriving. I had a flash that day on the deck that when Jesus showed up in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago as a baby, it was kingdom of God arriving. I went to, I went to Vern Clark, I went to the, to the new head of the Navy and said, one of your sailors is really ill. I think he's going to go home to Jesus pretty quick. Could you write him a note? And Vern wrote, dear Charlie, understand, sir, I understand you're in some rough waters, sailor. Just want you to know that a bunch of us in the fleet are standing with you in prayer. Your brother, Admiral Vern Clark. Charlie kept that beside his bed. He went into hospice care. I called the congressman and I said, I think we need to go see Charlie. I think it won't be many days. On a Saturday in June, we went out to see him, walked in. Charlie is skeletal, but his spirit is just vibrant. He's just alive. And he looked at us and said, hi, fellas. He said, hi. He said, Dick, you know that thing we talked about, about to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord? I said, yeah. He said, how does that work? I said, uh, Charlie, I don't, I don't know how that works because I haven't done that part yet. But, they, but the, other parts, the other parts I did worked. So I, I, think, I think it's, you know, I think to be absent, I think it means to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Like you come to me for counseling, it's deep. You know, pretty much I go with what it says. And I, so I said, I don't know exactly how that works. And, and the congressman said, well, where's that part where he's gonna, Jesus is going to add on a room and come and get us? I said, it's John 14. He said, find that text, read it, read it and tell us what it means. I said, yes, sir. I got the text. I said, it's like that old Middle Eastern house where the young man goes off, finds a bride, come back. They add a room onto the house, live as a big family. Heaven's apparently like that. And I said, Charlie, I think Jesus is going to come get you in a couple of days and take you. He said, I think so too. I said, you're going to turn around a couple of times and hopefully Frank and I will show up. Be great to be with you. He said, I'll look forward to that. That'd be great. I said, why don't we have a prayer? We joined hands. Mary came in. We joined hands around his bread. I said, Congressman, why don't you pray? He got about three sentences out. 16 years, he'd been in the most hellish places in the world with his brother, if you will. And he got about three sentences out and couldn't finish, so I finished the prayer. Not long after that, we stood by Charlie's grave at his memorial service at Arlington National Cemetery. Had the flag draped casket, the case on, pulled by the horses. They folded up the flag to give it to Mary, his wife, with the words, with, with the thanks of a grateful nation. About that time, the bugler started playing taps down at the tree line, and I had this thought. I said, I, I, you know, if there were loudspeakers in heaven, I have this feeling that it, it went something like this. Attention, all hands. Charles Evans Hughes White, United States Navy captain, retired, child of God, arriving.
Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you have called us to yourself. And that as your gospel writer John said, that when we believe in your name, you give us the authority to become kids. <laughs> Thank you for your grace in our lives. We want you to know this morning we'll never get over you. We stand on tiptoe to see what it is you want to do next. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes. Take three steps to the right. No, just kidding. Okay. <laughs> wow, what a powerful word. That God's faith, His presence of who He is, the I Am, wants to replace every fear we have. I don't know what your what if is. What if this happens? What if that happens? It may be about health or finances or work or future. Whatever your what if is, here's what Jesus says. I am. I am your peace. I am your strength. I am your provision. I am your grace. In this moment, maybe you're in one of those dark times where you can't see clearly or you've got all these what if fears working. I'm just going to invite you to raise your hand because I want to pray for you right now. Some of you are watching at home. Some of you are all over campus. But wherever you are, I just want to speak that I am over you right now. Father, you know the fears the enemy uses. Some of us are very severely spiritual warfare fatigued. We've been attacked. We're weak. We're struggling. And so, Lord, in this moment of all the what ifs, what if this is it? What if it doesn't work? What if it doesn't take place? What if I can't do it? Lord, whatever the what ifs are that are invading your people right now, Reveal who you are, the I am. Because you say, I am with you. I am here. I am your strength. I am your shield. I am your refuge. I am your healer. I'm your provision. I'm your wisdom. I am that I am. Lord, speak that truth deeply into us that we may truly believe and have faith. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Let's give thanks to God for his faithfulness. Let's also say thanks one more time to Dick Foe for ministering that word to us. It's a powerful word. I guess it's okay to call someone a babe. I don't know. Um,